Welcome again to another episode of Two Ways News. I'm Philip Jensen. And I'm Tala Kachoyan. Welcome again, Taylor. It's lovely to have you back again. It's good to be back and welcome back. You've been on NTE. Yes. How was that? Yes. Being Christian, it has to have three letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a TLA, which is a three-letter acronym. It's a TLA. It's a TLA. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm with you go. now. She's with me. Good. <laughs> the penny's dropped. <laughs> the penny has dropped. Do you ever get called Adelaide? No. Well, you call people who get the joke later Adelaide because Adelaide's always half an hour behind us. <laughs> That's cruel, isn't it? Uh, NTE is the national training event of AFES, which is the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, and it's a great conference. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've been on it a few times. I went as a student, as a uni student, and then also as a more college student, just helping out, leading mm. some of the strand groups. It's an excellent week. I learned so much there. It was probably the first time I was introduced to biblical theology, and it was amazing. A good number of our young people from my church went, and they were really encouraged. So, good. Yeah. Good. How did you find and, it? And one of the great things about it is after four or five days of Bible teaching and, and training, they then go out on missions to different churches yeah. around the place. Yeah. So where were your people going, do you know? Oh, they had a few different locations. But we did right. actually have a group coming to do mission with our church, one of the congregations of our church that is a Japanese-speaking congregation. Oh, yes. And so that Fantastic. was encouraging. Yeah. They had a lot of great events and engaged with a lot of community members during yeah. their time. And, of course, it's one of the few national conferences. Australia's hard place to have a national conference because Perth is – so far from mm. Sydney or from this occasion Canberra, it's expensive, it takes time to travel there. Yes. And so it's hard to run national conferences and this is one of the occasions. But when you have 2,500 people, the preaching and the teaching of the Bible is difficult, especially because there's so many different translations. Yes. <laughs> and so which yes. one do you use and, and why do you choose to use which translation is now such a problem? We talked about translations a little while back, back in September, with Tony discussing words and mm. changes of words and meanings of words. But translation is one of those difficulties for us Bible readers. Of course, very few of us are reading the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. And so once you read it in your English, then how accurate can you translate from one language to another? I mean, tell us about your Armenian. Because <laughs> you speak both languages. I do, yes. Can I you just... translate just from one to the other easily? Uh, no, it, it, it takes work. It's hard. Um, there's definitely, I think, ideas that are in one language that you won't find in the other. Idioms and things like that that really make sense in one culture don't make sense in the other. So, yeah, it is a hard thing to translate one language to the other. You can't really – it's not easy to find an equivalent, but, yeah. That's definitely been my experience. Tell us about the word you. <laughs> yes. It's interesting. In Armenian, the word you, often when you hear it in preaching, it's kind of used in terms of the abstract one that you're referring to, that one. But we would just talk about it as you. And so I often find in my own speaking or if I'm teaching the Bible, in English. In English. I will just use the word you, which can sound quite confronting or aggressive in English because it's like you're talking to the person right there. Whereas in Armenian, it carries a different sort of weight. So when you talk to me and call me you, you might actually not be talking I'm, about me at all. No, I might be talking about that one. That I, one I wonder if that one would be well, rather than you as in you, Philip. 
Yeah. So it, it has caused me to trip up a few times in terms of conversation <laughs> with people. It's like, I don't mean you. I just mean someone. Someone. <laughs> someone, yeah. Who could include you. It could include you. Yeah. And me as well. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> That is, it's therefore impossible just to go word by word equivalence yes. from one language to another, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And it's not just with words, it's with idioms too. I came across a fun one the other day. So in English, in Australian, if something is really far away, we say it's in whoop whoop, right? Like yes, yes, whoop whoop, <laughs> yeah. yes. In Armenian, we have this saying, which is, it's the place where the donkey died. <laughs> that's what it's the literal idiom is it's very fun anyway and then i was reading the bible one to one with the girl at church and we're reading through jeremiah 22 and verse 19 i found this verse philip it just made me so excited it sort of says with the burial of a donkey he shall be buried dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. <laughs> He's where the donkey died. It's where the donkey died. It's whoop whoop. I found whoop whoop. It's you in Jeremiah 22 verse 19. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, well, that's, yes, idioms don't translate easily, do no, they? No, they definitely don't. <laughs> So it's hard to translate from one-to-one equivalence. Is that why we have so many different translations in English? Well, in part it's that, isn't it? That you can't just have the authorised translation that will work for all time. Yes. Yeah. Part of that, of course, the language keeps changing. English is a wonderful language because it's such a world language. It just keeps absorbing information from elsewhere, everywhere, doesn't it? And it's even faster now with like social media and things like that. It's always just evolving all the time. Like I find that things that I've talked to 20-year-olds now, they're using words in ways that I've never used before. Um, The language has just shifted completely. Yes. So it's hard for old people and young people... To talk. To talk. (laughs) (laughs) We go to emojis now. (laughs) We go to emojis as a way of solving our problems. But it's... uh, It's a very fast-changing language, isn't it? Yeah. So although you can't have the one translation that is fixed for all time, when you're dealing with a group, it's really helpful if everyone has the same Bible. Mm. (laughs) And one of the essences of a good Bible translation is community acceptance of it because words have meanings in relationships. So if we all agree that that's what we're meaning, we can talk with each other. But if we all use words completely differently, we wouldn't be able to use any words. We can't talk because we actually think in words. And it's not just words. We think in the grammatical structure and the syntactical structure of sentences. Mm. And that's different also, isn't it, as to how you move from one language to another. Again, I don't know about Armenian, but I know the Hebrew structure of thinking is a different structure of thinking to the Greek structure of thinking. Yeah, and I wonder if actually if you've got more than one language and you've done any kind of translation or um, interpretation sort of work, you can actually cope with the clunkiness of different translations more easily because you are always having to think in different languages and translate, you know, your family to other people. So I think if you've got more than one language, it kind of helps you. It helps you know that language is sometimes clunky. Yeah, I like sure. the word clunky. It's a good word for us, isn't it? Because <laughs> I think the uh, English Standard Version is clunky. But I think the English Standard Version is what I call translated English. It's not the language that anybody actually speaks in. It's just a little clunkier than normal English-speaking people would speak in. Yeah. The NIV is very smooth language. It is the language of modern, educated English speakers. But the Good News Bible, which 
originally was translated for Eskimos, (laughs) who had English as their second language. Wow. That is even more the language of the common man. That's one that anybody can read and understand. If you can read it all in English, your comprehension will be all right Mm. in the Good News Bible. But, of course, every time you make it more readable, less clunky, you're moving away from the original language in terms of syntax or grammar yeah. and away from unusual words, really. And that's, that's a kind of price we pay. We do have a lot of English translations. Why do you think that's the case? Well, the standardisation of English happened because of the King James Version of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. It was the time of the printing press. It was the first time when the community had a standard spelling Prior to that, the spelling is inconsistent. But now spelling became consistent, grammar became consistent, and the structure of how the sentences worked. And everybody had this set of books, two books in particular, the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, which was the standard authorised version of how to speak. And that continued into the 19th century. Wow. So it became the reference. Yes. And it was Christian. Yes. What an amazing thing. (laughs) It was an amazing thing. But since then, language has been moved not by Christianity, but has been moved by the de-Christianisation of our culture. Yeah. And that's getting faster and faster. Faster and faster all the time. And some of the key words we had, like, I mean, we talked with Tony about this in terms of the meaning of the word comfort, but words like faith, they're just meant quite differently today. And Christians want to hang on to the old meanings and the old ways of saying things. And technical words like propitiation, which no one now uses as a word. Yeah, but we want to keep it. But we want it's to keep our word. it. <laughs> it's our word and it's yeah. an important word. Yeah. Atonement yeah. And, and repent. Helen and I do the quick crosswords in the paper, and it's interesting how the clues show a non-Christian view of things like repentance consistently. Oh, feel sorry is the clue. Right. Well, yeah. that's not what we mean by repent. Yeah. But that's what the world means by repent. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, so, that's true. And friendship or something like that, which turns out to be a tone. Huh. And you think, well, no, no, it's not quite that. Yeah. It's, and so the movement of language, it's in words, but it's also in grammar, syntax. So when you read the older translations of the Bible, very long, complex sentences mm. with subordinate clauses. Tell us what you mean by subordinate clauses. They're introduced by relative pronouns, aren't they? And so I've got a sentence, the cat jumped out the window, but then I want to say something about the window and something about the cat. So I want to talk about the cat, which is brown and blue, jumped out the window, which is on the third floor. So the which is on the third floor is not necessary for the sentence. And so it's not the main sentence. It's a subordinate clause to that sentence. Yes. Now, in modern English, you just have short sentences. And so you would say, the cat jumped out the window. The cat was blue and brown. Mind you, that's a very weird colour for a cat, isn't it? The cat was blue and brown, full stop. The window was on the third floor. Why is it that, why such a change? Is it just that we moved away from print and in the more traditional sense? Well, no, I think that that change has come about by testing people's comprehension. Right. And people can comprehend sentences that are short and simple more easily than they can comprehend a complex sentence. And in doing that, though, don't we just reduce our ability to keep coping with long and longer sentences yes and more and more complex thinking yeah not so good for us well no it's bad for the community because it means the kinds of information that we process has to be very simplistic 
But on the other hand, it's good for us because it's much quicker and easier to read little short sentences. Yeah, texts and things like that. Yeah. That's how we communicate. Yes, more and more. So we have this problem of how do you speak in modern English? How much can you translate into modern English without losing the argument of the sentence? The New International Version, for example, which is lovely modern English, it doesn't translate the word because very often or for. And that's a real linkage between one sentence and another. This sentence, because of that. But if you leave out the because, you don't see the connection between the sentences. Mm. And that's a great weakness especially in argument sections like romans yeah where it's a tight-knit argument to get rid of the connective words is to get rid of the connections between ideas but that's how modern english operates what do we do in its place in modern english well we don't (laughs) (laughs) like because we just lose the art of argument yes but we still try and persuade in other ways yes very much more in modern english by personal you know my truth Yes. Uh, this is how I see it. I tell stories rather than use logical argument. Yeah. But that's another subject. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same problem though, isn't it? If you try to convey meaning, the meaning of the text in modern English, you can do it. You don't have to teach everybody Greek and Hebrew, but you do it at a cost. And the more you accommodate modern English thinking as well as speech the more you compromise the accuracy of the translation. Yeah. And I think the example you've given is, especially when we read the epistles and we've got, like you said, with Romans, you've got a tight argument there. I wonder in some of the poetry, what is lost is, I think poetry, it's not written for readability. It's written for other purposes. It has a clunkiness to poetry often that I think a different kind of translation can cope with. But when you try and make poetry readable in a modern translation you can lose maybe some of the way the words have worked and the ordering of words and things like that Um, yes and so i do wonder if different translations for different genres even work yes and i agree with you i think there's a demarcation dispute between preachers and translators translators want to do the preacher's job for them make it absolutely simple for the bible reader to understand exactly what's in the bible and i'm for that Mm. but the preacher actually wants to explain to people what is in the bible and what it means and sometimes it's got to do with emphasis you know there's the little word man is a powerful word because it's so short this is the poetic Mm. point isn't it you know what is man that you are mindful of him yes Mindful is the only polysyllabic word, only word with two syllables. And so it's a very powerful sentence. But what are human beings that you think about them? It just doesn't carry. Man in his pomp is like the beasts that perish. It's it's a powerful way of saying it in Psalm 49, which, you know, human beings are like animals in that they die. Mm. I mean, it doesn't work poetically. The English is kind of clunky in one sense, but it's meant to be clunky. That's what yeah, That's yeah. what carries its power. And it's not just in poetry, it's also in prose, where one translation can have a different emphasis to another. Yes, it's not a difference in meaning, is it? It's no. just different in emphasis. Yeah. So I was recently teaching one John, and at our church we use NIV, but I was keen for us to use the ESV in this occasion, because throughout one John, you have a word comes up 
often in the NIV it's translated as dear friends but in the ESV it's beloved and I thought that was really an important emphasis to to know because the whole letter is about God's love and how God has created his people in his love and has given them new birth in his love and transformed them so they have been made in his love and so I thought the word beloved was a really precious word that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, which is just an emphasis, isn't it? I mean, dear friends is not wrong. No. Perfectly right. But beloved just catches something. It does. As a word, but also, like you say, in a book where it's about love. The one that's amused me for many years is in Judges. Because in Judges chapter 4, Deborah is introduced in verse 4. In most translations, I'll give you the ESV. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. But actually, the word now is not there particularly, but Deborah, and then the next word really in Hebrew is a woman. Wow. So it reads, Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth. She mm. was judging Israel at the time, and the, the she's emphatic as well. And so you've got all these words which indicate woman. She's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the, the heading yeah. of the whole two chapters, really. Yes. The story of Deborah is a story about a woman. Yeah. Because she's a prophetess, she's feminine, she's a wife, she's feminine, she. <laughs> now, the, the translators are right to leave it out in the sense that you don't need that word. I mean, it's obvious she's a prophetess or mm. wife, but by putting it in, you are indicating the important theme of the passage. You see, you don't need it in Hebrew. Just like you don't need it in English, you don't need yeah. it in Hebrew. Why don't you need it in Hebrew? Well, a sentence still makes sense in Hebrew without it. Yeah. So why did the man who wrote it put it in? Well, it's because he's emphasising something here. Yeah. There's no word wasted. No. No, the word is there for a very important reason. And to translate just for meaning yeah. without taking recognition of the wording changes the emphasis unintentionally. Mm. But, you know, translations have always struggled with the changing of English. The one I laugh about is what you said about you in <laughs> Armenian. I think that's very funny because in English, you used to be plural. Right. But you now. and ye were the two plurals. Okay. Whereas thou... The, thy, they were the singulars, you see. And so we used to differentiate in English between singular second person pronoun mm. and plural. But over time, the, thou, thy, etc., that's all disappeared from English. Yeah. And so we just used the word, and yes also, we just used this one word, you, for all second person pronouns, which means... In one sense, it doesn't matter because we know what is meant as you, but in another sense, it does because sometimes you want to know is it you singular or mm. you plural? So, is it use? Well, use, yes. If you're a bogan, you go for use. use. <laughs> if you're someone in the southern states of America, you go for you all. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> Which shows the need to have that indication. Mm. In John 3, you must be born again. Is it singular? Is it plural? And it's actually singular. He's saying to Nicodemus, you. Nicodemus, you yes. need to be born again. Yeah. Now, it's true, y'all need to be born again. <laughs> but the text is really addressing the one him. person, him. Yeah. And so English as a language changes for better, for worse, it just changes. No point trying to say it, uh, stand like King Canute and demand that it doesn't change. It changes. <laughs> and in trying to convey the meanings, we have this problem. Mm. The ESV is clunky 
and some people difficult to read because it retains some long sentences with yes. subordinate clauses. So its comprehension level is not as good as the NIV or the Good News Bible, but comprehension level is important. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can grow in learning the translation. Like yes. I think you can hear someone who's reading the ESV for the first time. I love the ESV. It's what I use, I have to say. I also have the NIV and we use that a lot at church. So there's a lot of ESV users and NIV users at our church. You can hear someone who's coming to the ESV for the first time and reading it out loud. There's a bit of a struggle sometimes. But you learn it and the clunkiness in some ways can slow you down, slow your reading down. And that has a merit, I think. Yes. Yeah, well, that does a merit. I mean, that certainly is the case for me in reading Greek or reading Hebrew. It really mm. slows me down <laughs> because I'm your average college graduate in theology who knows his Greek and Hebrew poorly. Mm. Uh, and so I struggle. But the slowing down is very helpful. Mm. Forces me to think yeah. much more carefully. And also continually doing it improves your knowledge. So likewise, continually using a hard translation improves your English mm. and your capacity for reading and understanding. But all this affects then which translation do you use, mm. <laughs> doesn't it? Because every church has to make its choice. Yeah. And as an itinerant, I am constantly now having to change translations. Uh, some, tra some churches use the Holman. It's not called yes. the Holman anymore, but yeah. the Holman translation. Others use... The RSVs, uh, the newer RSV, others used. The NIV is the most common, I think, around our world. Still others use the ESV. So I often have to ask, which translation do you want me to preach from? ESV is the easiest to preach from. NIV is the easiest for people to read and understand. So is there a right? Is there a wrong? No. There's just the old phrase is different horses for different courses. A new Christian... I don't think I'd start them in the ESV. A new uneducated Christian, I'd still look for the Good News Bible. Hmm. TEV, I think it used to be called. But the average educated Australian, I'd be putting them onto the NIV to start with. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult... It's like Apple Macs and, and PCs. The computer you start <laughs> on first up is the one it's, that you always you like always the like, most. You, yeah. you keep going back to, don't you? And yeah. So even on that, you've got to say, well, where do I want them to finish up? And so there's no right answer as to which one to read, but it's important to understand what each one is doing, what will achieve, what its aims, what its purposes are. And how that works with what you're trying to do with the people you're teaching or yes. the Bible study, the church that you're part of. Yes, that's right. That's that's the important question in serving people with our translations. Yes. Why don't we pray about it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us that we can know you and understand you. Yet, Father, you know our limitations and our difficulties, our limitations of language that you've put upon all the world under the judgment from the Tower of Babel and our difficulty in understanding each other and sadly difficulty in understanding your word. We do pray for our translators that should help them to make your word clear as they translate into other languages and we do pray that you would give us wisdom as we read translated English that we will come to understand its limitations and its wonderful strengths. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.